Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 167. In this episode, we're talking about mutuality and ministry with Friends of Nature with Melissa and Ben Connor. Melissa Connor is Executive Director and Certified Advanced Therapeutic Writing Instructor at Renew Therapeutic Writing Center in Holland, Michigan. Dr. Benjamin Connor is Professor of Practical Theology, Director of the Graduate Certificate in Disability and Ministry at Western Theological Seminary, and the author of Amplifying Our Witness and Disabling Mission, Enabling Witness. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Stephanie Kate Judd, Dr. Grace Sengalang Ng, Reverend Daniel Parham, and me, Dr. Madison Pierce. So team, this was such a fascinating conversation with my friends and colleague, the Connors. So what were some of the takeaways that you had in this conversation? I loved um, hearing more about the inflection point for them vocationally, about those moments in our life where we reconsider the way that we'd seen things prior to that. And I think that um, hearing hearing particularly Ben describe um, the moment in, in his ministry journey where he realized um, that this is not ministry to people with disability, but this is ministry with and alongside, which I think picks up in a really embodied and concrete way one of the themes throughout this whole series, which has been when you pay attention, you you realize that there are gifts on offer to you and to the communities that you're in. And so I thought that that was a really profound and um, a really profound and powerful just anecdote, um, which captures a lot of the kind of more conceptual things that we're talking about in this conversation. Yeah, I think to go along with that, um, I loved hearing uh, Melissa and Ben's uh, personal stories, just hearing how the contributions of people with disabilities really enrich and bring more depth to the gospel and to the kingdom. I think that is really beautiful seeing how they can utilize their gifts um, and contribute to a spirit-filled community as well. Uh, I appreciated the destigmatizing elements of life of persons with disabilities and how um, they demonstrated the, the stabilizing presence of, of those who many of us who are able-bodied would feel destabilized. Uh, but even the example that they gave of the calming effect of, of a, a young, you know, young child, uh, I think reminds us of the, the embodied presence that is more encompassing than sometimes we, we, we remember uh, because of our uh, discomfort uh, around around disability versus seeing the beauty of disability and the the divergence in a uh, a very beautiful way. Yeah, agreed. Those are all excellent insights, and I'm really looking forward to the project that they're working on together. So we'll be able to learn more from them in the future. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit our website at thetwocities.com. And with that, here's our conversation with Melissa and Ben Connor. Ben, Melissa, it's so great to have you on the podcast. So welcome, um, and we're really looking forward to learning from you today. Thank you. We're excited to be here. Thank you very much. So to just get us started off, could you tell us a little bit about, we're in this series on disability and theology. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how your work intersects with that topic more broadly, how you got interested in it, and maybe some of the shapes that it's taken over the years? Sure. I'll start, and uh, Melissa will fit right into that because our stories obviously intersect very deeply around this, but... I was preparing to go do doctoral work at Princeton Theological Seminary with Daryl Guter to look at missional and ecumenical theology. And part of our bedtime ritual with the kids at that point, our oldest, Tommy, was seven years old, and then three girls go down from there, was to read to him on the love seat. And while I was reading, he had a seizure. 
And it was pretty frightening. I'd never experienced a seizure up close before. And uh, everything didn't go exactly smoothly. The, the person at the emergency room should never be around children. He said things like, well, you should never ride a bike or swim again, which were the two things he enjoyed doing most. We realized before that, that he learned differently. So we had already decided to homeschool him because school was a nightmare for him. He was very creative, but was making connections his peers weren't making and his teachers weren't making. And we realized his creativity and his intelligence, but we also knew he was moving off the beat of a different drum. And so already I was learning a lot about universal design and learning and and principles of education and uh, pedagogy just by hanging out with my son. But uh, that moment for us we was important because we found out that through a series of tests that he had had a stroke at birth and was missing about a third of his brain. Uh, the story today is that he's a manager of a storage facility. He, he is, uh, has a home with a couple of roommates and has bought his own car and he's doing really well. But we were at the front end of that and had no idea what was going to happen. And so we had to become advocates and we had to learn about the disability community and how to navigate school systems. And it was exhausting. And of course, all of that was gonna inform the way that I listened and the kinds of questions I asked at a theological seminary, uh, which was a place that could be defined by Jay Dalmage as filled with academic ableism. It's represented by heavy doors and steep steps. It's meant to filter people out. It's not meant to bring in different kinds of people. It has a certain kind of body mind that's going to be successful, a certain kind of body mind that's invited to participate. And here I am asking questions that don't really fit while I am trying to work on this dissertation that brings together missiology and Christian practices. And I'm thinking, well, if this doesn't apply to my son and to all these other kids I'm getting to know while I take him to occupational therapy, while I take him to the pediatric neurologist, while I take him to physical therapy, while I take him to the odd herb lady, you know, all these things we're trying to do to make sense of what's going on. If it, if, if it doesn't work for these kids that I'm getting to know, then how relevant is it in the first place? And then so that for me, that was the beginning of shifting my thinking about disability as not a liability or deficit, but as a lens for looking at things, as an as a embodied way of being in the world that provides uh, a new way of knowing, a new way of comprehending, and seeing people with disabilities as expert life hackers who have had to learn how to navigate a world that's not designed for them. So while I'm doing this at Princeton, Melissa and the four kids moved back to Virginia, where we're from, and that's where her side of the story comes in. So, so I um, grew up with horses. I was a lucky young girl, youngest of three girls. So I have two older sisters. Um, I grew up around horses and had always uh, loved being in their presence. I did learn to ride as a, at a young age and um, did compete in the hunter jumper circuit in Virginia and had really gotten away from horses for a while. Um, beca I became aware of therapeutic riding and equine assisted services in the 90s. I had a good friend who had uh, an internship just out of college at a center that was looking at therapeutic interventions. And it really piqued my interest, but I was in the middle of um, having very young children and doing all of these things. So when um, Ben was working on his PhD and we started on this new journey with our son, um, we were with him at Princeton for a while, but really ended up returning home to Virginia, really to seek out services for our son, Tommy, that were not available to us in New Jersey, not readily available. It was, there was like a two year long waiting list to get him into the, the speech therapy and occupational therapy that he needed. 
Um, so I uh, moved back home with the the four kids. So Tommy and three younger sisters uh, lived with my mother-in-law for a while. And, and what happened there was I got about two or three hours a week, other than homeschooling, doing lots of intensive therapies where my mother-in-law watched the kids and um, I had free time. And where I found myself going was to the local therapeutic writing center to volunteer because it was an escape for me to go back to my to help others alongside horses. And um, that was what I chose to do with my couple of free hours I got every week. So I really just was tremendously interested, intrigued, and then, and became very passionate about that work as well, because at, at that time in my life, as we were learning about how to uh, relate to people with disabilities, realizing the ableist world that we lived in, the opportunities that uh, children had, which were very limited. Um, we were feeling that ourselves with our son. Um, but at that time, I was just volunteering and I was, I was seeing miracles happen. And I was seeing God at work in people's lives in ways that I hadn't We'd been in ministry for years, but I really was seeing some incredible things. And what really got me hooked was I worked, was working with a four-year-old little girl who was not walking and the doctors didn't know why. And this was a long time ago. This was 2005. So um, I was just helping her as what we call a sidewalker and her physical therapist had recommended that she um, try therapeutic riding. And within six weeks, this little girl, her name was Chloe, took her first steps within six weeks of riding a horse. And I remember the day it was Friday afternoon lesson. And she, I mean, she only took a few steps. She had her walker. She pushed her walker away and she walked towards her horse. And I was part of that team that got to make that happen. And I was just so excited. I I told Ben like, okay, I'm doing this for the rest of my life. This is incredible. I had always seen horses as I knew that I enjoyed being with them. I knew I felt drawn to them, but I had never seen just uh, the incredible life transformation that can happen. And in this case, it was physical for a, a young girl with physical challenges and just understanding that God created these beings in this way, such that a human riding on them can develop the musculature to be able to learn to walk. Like that was just mind blowing. So um, what's interesting about our story while these things were being made, a, we were gaining awareness of what was happening in our lives and our family and our son's lives. It broadened our view to the world. And our son, Tommy was never drawn to horses. <laughs> he likes small animals. Uh, actually he had to overcome even dogs had a real fear of dogs. He had a fear of horses. So while I tried to introduce him to that, that was not his thing. So instead it became, it, it did become my thing, but, um, uh, he, we still credit him with the introduction to the world of disability theology and horses as partners in ministry. So that's, uh, you know, you can ask another question if you want, but then the next step from that, do you want to hear the next step from that? So that's, I passed, I, I passed my comprehensive exams. And then finally I was able to join my family back in Virginia and, uh, needed to, uh, needed to put some, I needed to act on all this stuff I was learning because you obviously don't have much time when you're learning theological German and French and trying to pass comps and get your dissertation topic approved. You're just trying to survive. And so I finished this part of it. And now I actually had some time and some, some energy. And I said to Melissa, I think, uh, I think we should start up some sort of ministry. And in my head, the way I phrased it was some sort of ministry to young kids with disabilities because there just isn't anything like that where we live. And I'm hearing all of these stories from the parents when I'm taking Tommy to these different places about how Craig used to have a friend in the neighborhood. And then another guy said, why do you hang out with that retard? And so he doesn't have a friend anymore. 
Um, and then one that really broke my heart was there was a girl who was going to have a party uh, at the local aquatic center. And the mother was just about in tears because no one was coming to the party. And this was when I was waiting at an occupational therapy. And I said, go ahead and have that party. Melissa and I coached the swim team in our neighborhood. And we had done youth ministry in town. So we got our, uh, we got our minivans <laughs> and filled them up with kids and took them to the dollar store and gave them money to buy piratey sort of aquatic themed stuff. And we all showed up at the aquatic center um, and this girl had a party. <laughs> and here, what I noticed was this, that yes, the girl was delighted because all the attention was on her and she was having fun. The mother was in tears. Because no one had done that for her. And it wasn't me. Uh, they, the most exciting thing to me was I'd been in youth ministry. I was always trying to come up with discipleship techniques that involve prayer and Bible and retreats and these sorts of things. And all of them were really uh, even service projects were very self-serving. Uh, but I found out all that I'd been learning about Christian practices, about hospitality and and uh, this sort of uh, caring and nurturing for one another, these embodied ways of living out our theology, I saw it come into play. I saw high school kids who are considered by others to be, you know, uh, run by their hormones and have a prefrontal lobe that makes them make poor decisions and largely selfish because they're trying to work on their identity. That's how they're seen by other people. And then here I see them loving this girl, caring for her and being delighted in it. And I thought this, this is discipleship. And now I can explain to them what's going on, what they're experiencing, what the biblical foundation is of what it is that they're doing right now, how to articulate what they're experiencing theologically. So this ministry that, that then we began together turned out to be a ministry Yes, to young adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities, also to typically developing high school kids who we recruit as volunteers, whether they were Christians or not, they were going to come into this community and experience something of the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of Jesus Christ. And then we accidentally started this ministry to parents where they would come bring their kids to our house and then take a walk in our neighborhood, connect with each other, find other parents who are going through the same kind of struggles, exchange information about resources that are available, the ones who have been at it longer, helping the other ones along. And it was a real community. And that's where things started to change. But things changed for me. And theologically, when I took a group of seven of these guys to a camp. And when I took these kids to a camp, it was, uh, I, I did not know what I was doing. And so uh, everything that I did was probably wrong. Like having written a book on youth ministry and disability now, I don't use examples of what I did positively because I had these parents show up with their kids and the first thing they did was hand me these coolers filled with medicines. It's like, what in the world? Like I had no idea because Tommy had a different kind of disability. He didn't require all of this. And this medicine can't be taken with this. This one has to have food. If he doesn't have these gummy treats with this medicine, he won't have them. And I, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, and I have seven different things to administer. Uh, and then one of the women who dropped her son off had this big smile on her face and I couldn't understand why. why. Her son, Xavier, is the most athletic kid I've ever met. He's on the autism spectrum, but if you could somehow Velcro a football to him and point him in the right direction, he would score every time. I mean, he's the fastest. He can jump the highest. He's so strong and solid. Even at 14, I couldn't keep up with him. He was amazing, amazing athlete. He could jump through a whole room filled with people who are just sort of lounging and not step on anybody's fingers, toes, anything like that. Just, just remarkable. Well, he was going to camp with me in the middle of the George Washington National Forest, and he's a runner. I wasn't prepared for that. I only had one other volunteer with me. 
And so the whole trip up, he was excited. He was shaking my seat as we were going. So it's like I had a massage seat for three and a half hours going back and forth. Another kid who was on the trip had just had a death in the family. And so he was really sad. He's having a challenging time processing it. He has Down syndrome, intellectual, he has intellectual disability. He likes quiet spaces. He likes to sit in a corner with a book. He likes to watch what's going on and engage on his own terms. The camp we were going to was not set up for a person who experiences life that way. It was a typical youth camp with all the energy and all the lights and surprises and sounds. And I was not ready for that. And then one of the other guys who came on the trip has become a very good friend. His name's Craig. He was in his mother's womb when she had a car accident and as a result has cerebral palsy. And he is a big NASCAR fan. If you were to ask him, he'd say Dale Jr. Dale Jr. So that's Dale Earnhardt Jr. for the uninitiated. He has a whole room filled with Dale Jr. trinkets and I don't know what you would call it, but even has tires and posters and cardboard cutouts. He just loves it. He also loves Virginia Tech sports because I went to college at Virginia Tech. And sometimes that's a good thing. But recently it has not been a pleasant thing because <laughs> every time there's a game, he texts me about the wins and losses. And most of them have been losses. And while I'm trying to forget, he's reminding me constantly. He has a great sense of humor wonderful guy, most thoughtful guy. And he loves animals. And in fact, right now he's working at the Humane, Humane Society, Society. Um, with animals. So he was on the trip with me. I'm getting to where everything changed for me. We get to the camp. Bo, who's sad, won't get involved in any way. He, he doesn't want to go to the meetings. He hasn't eaten for three days. He's very sad. Uh, I know that he loves Friends, the show Friends. Uh, in fact, he talks to them, you know, no, no, Chandler, that's not funny. Hey, Monica, you know, like he'll work them into a conversation with you as if they're there. Of course, that's related to the fact he hasn't had a lot of durable friendships. And so he's had to create some. Um, but here he is now. He has some people who care about him and like him, but he's learning how to engage him. He's learning how to trust when he's had so many relationships that were therapeutic interventions or with doctors or with teachers or special education, but no durable friendships really. And so it's hard to build trust with him. And I think, well, he loves friends. I'm going to have the people who are leading the meetings play the theme song to friends. And I know that'll get him involved. And so here we are, we're going to the meeting, me, the one other leader and the seven guys all together. And then all of a sudden, Xavier, boom, this is a good time to explore the George Washington National Forest. And he bounces away. I know there's no way I'm going to catch him. So I asked my volunteer leader, Brent, who was on the William Mary football team, go catch Xavier. I'll get everybody else safely to where this meeting is. I'll get a responsible leader to watch our kids. And then I will go help you. But when I get there, I realize I only have five of the kids. Bo's not with us. The only thing Bo has enjoyed so far is a hot shower, half an hour to 45 minutes at a time, or the hot tub. There's actually a hot tub at this camp. So I say, okay, I'm going to go look for Bo. So I head out, look for Bo. I go to the, the dorm room. The shower is not there. Then I go over towards the hot tub. And as I'm walking towards the hot tub, I find a shoe and then another shoe and then a sock and another sock and a shirt and some shorts <laughs> and some boxer shorts. And then I find Bo naked in the hot tub, just smiling, going, uh. <laughs> and uh, fortunately I find a towel. I wrap it around Bo and I bring him back to the dorm room and I'm thinking, okay, I got to do something about this. And I'm a parent of a child who has disabilities. So I apply my parenting skills and they fail. They worked about as good as they did with my own kids. And so then I think, all right, I have a master of divinity, the most arrogant title of any degree ever, where I have taken pastoral care and I've learned how to be a non-anxious presence. So I will be a non-anxious presence to Bo. 
But of course, I'm anxious. So it didn't really work very well. It's making him more upset. I am a defense away from a doctorate where I've considered these things at very deep levels. So I apply that skill set as well. And as you can imagine, it's just about as effective as the other two. And he's crying. And I'm not a very emotional person, but I'm about to cry. And I'd love to say it's out of empathy, but it was out of frustration. I thought, I got two more days of this. This is miserable. What am I going to do? We'd been there so long that the meeting ended. Xavier bounces in the room, bounces around and bounces out. And I thought, oh, good. We found Xavier. And then Craig comes in. Now, Craig, with his cerebral palsy, he's had to have a, a dorsal rhizotomy to stop his spasticity. He has all kinds of things to help him move a little better, but he, he still moves with an odd gait. He always looks as if he's about to fall over, but he never quite does. He doesn't look at me and Bo and analyze the situation and say, what skill set can I draw upon from my previous learning to intervene? He doesn't have a capacity to do that intellectually. What he has the ability to do is be present. And Craig comes in between me and Bo. He puts his arm around Bo. Bo puts his head on Craig's shoulder and stops crying. And at that moment, something changed for me. It moved from ministry to young adults with disabilities to ministry with and by. And that, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, so that moment for Ben and, and I was, I was there that week too, but fortunately the girls were a little less uh, involved <laughs> than the guys, but that moment led not only to a change in Ben where he changed the title from his second book which is he had already started planning on from amplifying their witness to amplifying our witness because Craig was our partner in ministry as he ministered to Bo through and to me and Ben <laughs> through friendship. And we realized that it was not about skill sets. It was about giftedness from the Holy Spirit and and showing up in the moment um through that obedience and that that we're all gifted differently and that there's not a hierarchical way of thinking about this instead it is very holistic so that was that approach mm -hmm. and that made him think differently and write differently wow ben and melissa what what a what a ride that the lord has taken you both on over the over the course of your life so far um, and thank you so much for sharing about the way that um yeah interacting with people with disability has um redirected um the, the path that you were going on i think that's that's a common common thread throughout a lot of the series that we've been exploring is that there's a there's an opportunity to reevaluate and reconsider and the ways that you used to think uh, in a way that is really profound and refreshing. Um, ben, I want to, um, before we before we talk about um, Melissa Renew, I'd love to hear more about Renew, the work that you're doing currently. Ben, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, um, so you, you just described for us um, that moment with, with Bo and with Craig and realising, oh, this is, the directionality of this witness and this 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 task is not unidirectional it's actually reciprocal and we're doing this common task together you've obviously thought more deeply about um, the way that um, disability theology um, reshapes um, our understanding of mission can you unpack a little bit more about some what are some of the key the key kind of headline um, take-homes that you have that you've had over the course of your professional career? Yeah, well, so if we start with the just the concept of witness, uh, one, that was expanded. So first, it, in my mind and in my upbringing, it had to do with the capacity to communicate verbally. 
And so that was the saying of witness. But the truth is the concept of witness or martyria, the idea of, you know, from which we get martyr, this concept of witness, it, there's a, a doing of witness, a being, at, which is the diaconia or the service that we do. There's a being of witness, which is the kind of community we are, which is a koinonia. So there's a being of witness. And then there is a saying of witness, a kerygma. But all these things are connected. And, um, and, and, I, and we tend to foreground the one that is most valued in our society and that we, we're most familiar with. And for many people, it has to do with our, our ability to understand, comprehend concepts and to cogently relate them to other people in a way that's compelling mm. all the time trusting in the power of the holy spirit that no one comes to christ except by the holy spirit but being around people with disabilities and learning from disability theology i've i've relativized the one that was always central for me and destigmatized the others and in that way you could look at something like john the baptist's witness and when I say that, what comes to mind? Is it the he must increase, I must decrease? Because I'm thinking a little earlier than that. In fact, I'm thinking a lot earlier than that. I'm thinking of Elizabeth and Mary meeting. And as you'll recall, what happens there is John leaps in the womb. Now I'm asking you, what intellectual capacities, what social skills, what communication abilities did John the Baptist have at that moment? It was a response. It was a leap. And that leap is such a powerful witness. It's in scripture and we read it at least once a year, right? And that's bearing witness. And that, that, so I had to think differently. Okay. So let's take different sort of disabilities and think about this concept of witness and reimagine how we understand witness through the reality of the lived experience of people with disabilities having spent a lot of time with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, um, I, I've learned that uh, there are many, many different communicative modalities, many different ways we respond to faith, many different ways that we express faith. And the problem is we're not attuned to them because we don't attend to them. So all this is going on us all the time. And so part of it is a matter of slowing down and seeing differently through the eyes, ears, and bodies of other people. And if they're not present, you're never going to do that. So anything you're going to do in disability theology has to be done in partnership with people with disabilities. In fact, John Swinton and I right now are working on a book for a series we're doing with InterVarsity Press, partnering with uh, my Center for Disability Ministry at Western Theological Seminary. And our book is called Missing Voices in Disability Theology, where we're looking at people who use augmented speech and, and recognizing them as theologians and trying to um, amplify their theological contributions. So one of the things I found, so someone will say, what about someone with profound disabilities, profound intellectual disabilities? People will say that they're non-agental or non-communicative. Well, if you attend to them, then you know that that's not the case at all. There's something going on. But even if it's not that discernible to you, let's take, for example, Frances Young. Frances Young, who wrote about her son, Arthur, and Arthur's Call. And she talks about, the, I mean, both the, the beauty of Arthur and the challenges of Arthur, who doesn't have capacities that that you expect one to have to participate in a life of discipleship or have a vocation, but she's arguing in Arthur's call. In fact, Arthur does have a vocation. And the way that you can talk about Arthur, the way that I've conceived it is Arthur has an evocative witness, that he evokes things around him, that the spirit is involved in Arthur, and that when he's in a community, that the community is shaped around him to be more loving, more filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, these things that Arthur requires to flourish through which he lives in interdependence with a community. And he has something to offer that bears witness to the reality of the kingdom of God, even though he's not doing things 
in an active sense that we think about doing things, he's evoking things in others, and the community would be different or Arthur not there. So that's part of a Christian witness as well. So now let's think about something else. How about deafness? Deaf as a culture, not deaf in terms of hard of hearing, but deaf in terms of using sign language and a particular way of being in the world and organizing life, ways of arranging worship spaces, ways of moving through spaces together, ways of working more collaboratively than independently, being visual instead of primarily oral. And what does that have to say in terms of our our, our witness in a, in a world where we are filled with, we're, we're constantly assaulted by images. And shouldn't we then go to people who are more visual and embodied and learn from them about bearing witness to the gospel? Let's go along with that to biblical interpretation. When you read a passage of scripture, something's going on in your mind, in your imagination, but you're never held it, you don't have to let anybody know that, right? Nobody knows that narrative. You're reading the words and something's happening in your head, but nobody knows unless you let them in on it. But in deaf communication, you're enacting things. And that enactment is part of your hermeneutics. It's part of your interpretation. The facial expressions, the distance, touch or no touch, the way you position your body, all these things give insight into the text. They're all part of the interpretive process it, that gives us a fuller witness to this gospel. It's so much richer. And so when we think about disability and ministry and disability and theology and disability and witness, don't think of it in terms of accommodation. We are all being accommodated. God is simply not impressed with my CV. You know, God doesn't think, oh, Ben, he only needs a, a little bit of an accommodation. <laughs> and are you kidding? I mean, there's no way I know God, except for God reveals God's self to me in a manner that I can comprehend. The same goes for every single person. Accommodation is always going on. So let's just assume it's going on and then try to attend to the specific ways it's going on. So instead of thinking about, I have to accommodate this for somebody else, because I understand it, they don't. Let me put it to their level, which is just plain insulting. Instead, let's think about this. We are all being accommodated to, and how can including the insights from people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, people who are deaf, uh, people with mobility challenges who have to navigate a world differently than us, how does that enrich our gospel? If that's the case, then and this is where I get into a little bit of disability studies, okay? That difference between impairment and disability, and I'm sure you've covered this in your podcast. So you may have an impairment, but the impairment doesn't disable you from being able to participate in Christian witness. In a sense, the only thing that can disable you, and this is along the social model, is if you're not allowed a place to appear, if you're not allowed a place to contribute. And that was the case with Craig. His contributions weren't valued. And so how I've taken that into theological education and into my writing is my goal is to create places where people with disabilities can flourish in theological education. So they never are faced with the question, how do you think you're going to be a pastor? Because that just shows a profound lack of understanding of Christian vocation. It's a very limited and ableist understanding of what capacities and skills are needed to be a minister. Instead, we need to learn more about what vocation is, what a minister is, what theological education is. We need to disable theological education, take away those biases. We need to disable ministry, take away those biases. And when we do that, the church will be enriched and our witness will be fuller. Thanks so much for sharing that. I really appreciate hearing about um, how the contributions of people with disabilities really enrich um, our vision of the gospel and of the kingdom. I think that's really beautiful. Um, would you be able to talk more about the Friendship Center at Western? Sure. A Friendship House is what it's called, and it is a residence that is on the campus of Western Theological Seminary. 
I'll let Melissa start because she was a director of Friendship House for a couple of years while she was getting things going with the uh, Therapeutic Writing Center. So would you like to talk about that? Sure. Um, one of the beautiful things um, when we, we moved here to Holland, Michigan in 2013, and, um, and as I was uh, in the process of trying to develop the nonprofit ministry at Renew, uh, it, it really became obvious the Friendship House as part of Western Theological Seminary needed some um, leadership and direction that had in the past been on the shoulders of seminary students. So Ben was overseeing that ministry and there were six residents. It is a home on the campus where a very unique model where seminary students live as roommates and neighbors to young adults from the community who have intellectual disabilities. Um, it was started in 2007 and it was started as a brilliant idea, um, but they only planned, I think, for about the first three to five years. There wasn't a long-term plan for how Friendship House was going to what it was going to look 25 years down the road. So we moved here. It was about six years old when we moved here. And um, there had been some turnover in students, some turnover in faculty, but the friends, as they were called, who were the six uh, young people, were now in their 30s, mid to late 30s, and uh, trying to integrate into the life of the seminary had not been a priority it was really just considered a residential space up until that point. So as it was reimagined and under Ben's guidance, um, the, the decision was made that they needed a staff member, a staff role at the seminary to help with the care of the people living in Friendship House, both the seminary students and the friends and then some intentionality in integrating them into the life of the seminary. And that was daily chapel services, participating in um, social events, and even what, what ended up happening was even having some of the friends, as they were known, um, audit some seminary classes to, to build some intentional friendships, relationships with seminary students beyond just their roommates, but kind of to go bigger. So I got to be a part of that process, um, which was very exciting. And then we graduated the founding friends, um, the six friends, and it was in a beautiful way. We got to imagine what that would look like as they rotated out of living in the friendship house and they moved into uh, other seminary housing, um, the red bricks, which are townhouses around the seminary. And they were able to live as neighbors with some of the families and, and others, and then welcome in some other friends and ended up transitioning um, as I left that position in 2018 and became full-time at Renew Therapeutic Writing Center. And then Carlos Thompson was hired as a now in fellow. They changed the model slightly to call them Friendship House Fellows, where they actually do intentional internships and and, and take courses as part of the expectation. So it was fun to, to intervene at that time and, and help shape some vision for the future so that it wasn't just a residence anymore, but it actually was a, a vital part of the seminary community and the really greater seminary and then greater Holland, local town where we live community. Um, and that has really been a beautiful thing to see. And those friendships have lasted. So that's the great thing. The, the friends, we started calling them the friends, you know, they're, they, they became quite famous around town, but they have, their friendships have multiplied really as seminary students have come through. So they have all those relationships to draw on. We, they each have different gifts. They've been able to contribute in worship and to the life of the seminary and beyond in the, in the community. Mm -hmm. So now we have, yeah, so as she mentioned, we have a Friendship House Fellows Program, and they apply, and Carlos Thompson leads it. I should mention Matt Floating's name. He's the one who imagined Friendship House um, in the beginning, and there are other Friendship Houses around, 
but none of them have integrated uh, the the friends into the life of they haven't had a stamp on a theological institution. Mm. And in order for that to happen, I realized we had to do some things. We had to do some training of our faculty and staff. So we had mandatory trainings for all faculty and staff around issues of ableism and what disability studies has to say about um, theological education. We had speakers come in like Bill Gaventa, John Swinton, Eric Carter, uh, just to prepare our seminary to receive this gift. Also, I developed a program. Uh, uh, at the, the first thing was a, a graduate certificate in disability and ministry, which was seven courses that begins with introduction to disability in the church, has a Bible-related one, a theology-related one, and then several electives. And this was to get our students thinking this way. So they're they're sort of positioned and oriented towards receiving the gifts of people with disabilities. That turned into a Master's of Arts in Disability and Ministry. I'm just now finishing up a Doctor of Ministry in Disability and Ministry, and of the eight people in it, seven of them claim disability. And uh, like I said, this series uh, that I'm doing with John Swinton, the focus of it is to provide publishing opportunities for scholars with disabilities. What we discovered through Friendship House is that some people with intellectual and de developmental disabilities have a vision of being ministers, but hadn't been taken seriously. And so what sort of a theological education can we put together for them that impacts our students? I mean, so you're learning Hebrew side to side with someone with intellectual disabilities, it changes the orientation of the class. Uh, before that happened, students felt a lot of anxiety. The class could feel competitive. You're worried about maintaining scholarships. You're worried about yourself. Well, and now all the shift, it focused on this one student, Amanda. Uh, Layla was her Hebrew name that she took on. And they, they wanted to make sure she succeeded. And it, it wasn't um, it wasn't just that, but she provided insights, hermeneutical insights, insights that the professor hadn't imagined the text because she's approaching it from such a different way. And because she learns differently, it causes them to learn differently. Again, it destigmatizes these different ways of learning. It relativizes this way that's so valued in the academy and opens us up to so many more possibilities. So, Friendship House has been very important to uh, Western Theological Seminary, and I believe to every student who's come through that program. Thank you both uh, for so much of your ministerial heart and how you're sharing. Uh, Melissa, I would love to hear more about Renew uh, and uh, your, your efforts in that area, uh, particularly in the therapeutic writing and, um, and, and where you've seen intersection between these two areas that you all have been kind of crossing over. Sure. Well, uh, Renew Therapeutic Writing Center is a ministry here in Holland, Michigan. We are part of providing what's known as equine assisted services or EAS. Part of that is therapeutic writing. Some other parts are um, equine assisted mental health or equine assisted psychotherapy, equine assisted learning. Uh, which would be uh, learning of life skills for people with disabilities. And then there are different therapies that are quite effective when you bring a horse into the therapeutic intervention model, such as physical therapy, occupational therapy, and speech therapy. So currently at Renew, we offer therapeutic riding as our primary uh, service that we do. Um, we, we serve about 115 families weekly through therapeutic riding services. That is where a person, a child or an adult with a physical, cognitive, mental health, or emotional challenge. Um, and occasionally some, um, there, we do serve people who have challenges such as, um, they're on a grief journey or healing from trauma. Um, they come for what might look like a riding lesson. Our staff um, 
are certified in therapeutic riding through PATH International. That's the Professional Association of Therapeutic Horsemanship International. We are a premier accredited center with, with PATH. So our program was developed really on the basis that we believe bringing horses and people together can cause positive life change. Um, I, I lean on really just the phrase of, of John 10, 10 a lot, just that when Jesus saying he's come, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full, but because we know that bringing people with disabilities together with horses brings these opportunities for change in life, whether it's physical or otherwise, um, we see these things happen. So we want to set those up to happen. The beautiful thing is that we do see those connections made all the time. And sometimes there are physical benefits, like the story I shared earlier. Sometimes there are emotional benefits. We have had people who have really struggled with um, some mental health challenges. And I've received notes and emails and had conversations where we've said this, this was the life-changing point in time for them was because they knew that they could come every week and be in the presence of their horse in a safe space in a safe environment. And the horse had no judgment um, that it, it created that place of healing for them. So there's just so many, I, I could tell story upon story upon story. I mean, one of the most recent that I had was um, a 16 year old boy with Down syndrome who was working on he was coming for speech therapy and he's been in speech therapy his whole life. I think since he was two years old, um, as he struggled with speech and his, um, here he is 16. He spoke his sister's name for the first time, just like a couple months ago while he was riding one of our horses and his parents were just so thrilled because he was able to articulate the name and it's that simple thing of he's doing a speech therapy session while seated on a horse that's moving, that is able to stimulate his him neurologically and physically through engaging his core, his, increasing his respiration, um, strengthening his diaphragm to create speech. So those little things like step-by-step step, putting them together, we... It looks like service delivery. We do provide services to public schools and really to anybody. We come at it as a staff and our board of directors, all with a faith commitment, feeling called to do this service. We look at our horses who are in our program as our partners in ministry. Um, this is not a job that is easy to do um, or and, and it's not suited to all, all horses, just like it's not suited to all people. Um, uh, ben and I have done a, a lot of considering and we have, we're have a book planned, but really utilizing uh, horses as created beings with gifts vocations. And so they're called into a vocation. Yeah. So a, a, a horse in equine assisted services, specifically in therapeutic riding, they have to um, approach their work differently and they have to, uh, be a willing partner in that work. And we can't convince a 1500 pound animal to do what we want it to do if they really don't want to. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's part of it. So watching the horses um, give and understand, and I, I firmly believe have empathy for those they are working with. And I see them adjust their bodies physically and make choices to serve. And that's another just beautiful thing that we do at Renew over and over again. So yeah, that's who we are and what we do. I should also say it's, we have a, here at Renew, we have a fairly small staff, um, 11 of us on staff. Um, and we have a board of directors and we have about 150 volunteers from the community um, who walk alongside of us. We have 19 horses at our farm and it takes a lot of work to run a 19 horse equestrian facility. And uh, so the volunteers are involved in every layer of that. 
um, another facet of that really is that it's the volunteers fully participate in what we do and experience the blessings through relationships with the families that we serve, with the horses that we partner with. And we have seen lots of uh, changes in our volunteers as well. I have, it's a beautiful thing. You have to be 13 years old to handle a horse or, or walk alongside of. And, and once I won a grant, because I said, it's the only time on a Thursday morning in this community that you will find 13 year old homeschoolers, hope college students, seminary students, stay home moms. We have some professional people who take off work and will come join us like some real real estate agents. And then we have retirees um, all working on a team to, to walk alongside people with disabilities with the goal of providing this service. So it's, it's unique in that way and it reaches many different levels. Um, so another quick story is a volunteer, one of our professionals who comes blocks out time, two hours in his week every week to come and be a volunteer. And he said it keeps him grounded and it keeps him centered. And then he can go back and be more productive at work after he has had his volunteer time in the barn. And uh, he has shared with us just that um, he sees a therapist weekly and his therapist told him to come volunteer at Renew as part of his ongoing plan for his life. So there's a lot of benefits that we've just seen trickle down and really it's through relationship, it's through teamwork and it's through trying to accomplish a goal together. Thank you so much, Melissa, for describing what seems like such a remarkable enactment of all these kinds of ideas that we've been exploring in this conversation together um, in the sense that it's not, it's not you know, a, a ministry to people with disability, but it's a ministry alongside and with um, ben, I just want to ask a, a final question uh, about, it seems in, in one of our previous conversations um, with um, Mike and Naomi Bird, it, it came up that um, being out in nature, being with animals seems to be a really good thing for people with disabilities. Um, but Melissa, from what you described, it's not just for people with disabilities, <laughs> it's, it's for all of us. I wondered if you could um, zoom back for us as as we finish up our conversation and just um, describe to us some of the things that you have found through Renew and through um, your, your work about why it is that this work in, in the natural world with, with animals but also more generally is so effective. Well, uh, there's a number of reasons. One, it's it's automatically universal design and learning. You can pick bark. You can take in scents. Scents. Mm -hmm. You can. You can. You can dig in the dirt. You can experience life. We all have a drive to do that. Why is that? A guy named uh, Edward Wilson calls it biophilia. Biophilia. It's this innate connection we have from uh, however you want to go at it. Evolutionary in terms of biology, how we've developed. You've developed as part of uh, nature. So you go into the forest and you have mushrooms communicating with tree roots, communicating with plants. There's all kind of communication going on. We just don't know how to attend to it. And that it's, it's, a, it's a mutuality that results in flourishing. And we're intended to be a part of that. But we've taken ourselves out of that and constructed false environments. And so many of the benefits of being in there uh, the Japanese take forest baths, just going out to the forest, breathing in the air, and it has incredible health benefits, and we've missed out on that. Um, so, and there's a, there's a book called Biophilia Effect that, that goes into, that details this very deeply. Why is it that we have this strange relationship with creation? I mean, the first is dominion. We have this horrible concept of dominion that's like domination. There's this uh, book uh, by Matthew Scully called Dominion. And uh, I'm, I'll tell you this one quote from the book. He says, my point is that when you look at a rabbit and can only see a pest or vermin 
or a meal or a commodity or a laboratory subject, you aren't seeing the rabbit anymore. Right? That's what dominion's done to us. We just want to control things and use things and shape things for our own purpose. We don't, we, we forget that we are nature, that we are part of creation. And so in the in, because of that, we have this, the first thing's dominion. The second is a drive to differentiate. We want to say, instead of saying what we have in common with all of creation, we want to say why we're better, why we should be able to use it the way we want to use it. And a lot of that has to do with our ability to think and, and control and, and that. But that just has ended up in devastation. There's other theological reasons that we don't have a good relationship with creation. And that's sort of the third one. The first dominion, the second drive to differentiate. The third is we see all of creation as a dramatic backdrop for a transaction that happens between us and God. Many people think we're going to be saved from this. But that's that's very poor theology. I mean, all things come together in Christ. It's all part of God. It all has the same ruach or breath in it that gives it life. We're all created from the same materials. We're all cared for and loved. And in fact, if you want to talk about something, the only creatures that cannot be what they're called to be is humans. You don't see rocks rebelling against God. <laughs> you know, I mean, a horse is a horse and a horse does horsey things. And in doing so is glorifying God by being a horse. And we're the ones who can push against our vocation. And so I think being in nature, being around creatures develops a sense of interconnectedness with others. It, it develops empathy. Being out in creation develops a sense of wonder and curiosity. And we see when we see what's happened because of human interventions, it also leads often to repentance and confession. So right there's your liturgy right there in the world. Um, and, and I think that's, so that's part of what's important theologically about our connection to the earth and to nature and to creatures. But then there are so many um, studies in, in, in scientific journals looking at the impacts of um, being in nature on our health and on our attitudes, developing empathy uh, by being close to, to, to creatures, other creatures, built empathy with other humans and, and all that kind of thing. So, um, and, and so instead of dominion and the drive to differentiate and a dramatic backdrop, instead we need to see ourselves as part of a community of creation that's interdependent with it that has something important to offer. And that's the, that's the good, strong theological side of dominion, the thing that we have to offer, not the control and not the uh, misuse, but um, the orchestrating the worship service. I just will add on to that just a little bit that I, there was a quote years and years ago that I saw that said, a horse doesn't see a child with autism a horse sees a child. So it's part of that. They don't bring any preconceived things. So in my world, they know we are humans. They know they are horses <laughs> and that's all that matters in their world. So I love the, the leveling of the playing field and in, in my work, uh, I see that every day. And then uh, also just consider it this amazing gift at that horses allow us to be in their presence because they could flee. They are bigger than us. They are stronger than us. They have their own will. And to see them choose to be in our presence is a gift. And that's that like cross species um, blessing, which is really powerful. And there's some research that has been done with horses. There's a lot more research that needs to be done, but just recently, we became aware of the HeartMath Institute doing a study, just very simply noticing that um, the variable heart rhythms and cortisol levels of humans drop when they're in the presence of horses. So um, it was pretty, and this just was done by people just taking a chair and sitting near a horse. <laughs> so it was uh, not even... Uh, you know, not a super 
difficult study <laughs> to pull off, but they uh, found that it was it was very effective at so when people and I found that to be true in my life, I didn't know why, but when I was a young girl, um, I have incredibly happy, wonderful memories of being with my pony at the barn that made me really look positive on the rest of my life. And now I know like, wow, there's something going on there. <laughs> I want to share that with other people. Cause I think that leads to flourishing. That's incredible. Ben, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoyed this conversation. And I know I personally have a lot more questions, uh, but we'll have to do that another day. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for having us.